Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, Alessandro Maniscalco and I share our analysis of the DC films from Warner Brothers Studios. Recently, we've been focusing on Suicide Squad because of the digital release that just happened a few weeks ago and the upcoming DVD and Blu-ray release on December 13th. I expect pretty solid home media sales for Suicide Squad, just like Man of Steel and BVS. Uh, They overperformed on the home media end of things. And Suicide Squad, it also had that certified platinum soundtrack, so overall the Justice League universe continues to be a booming success both in box office numbers and in home media sales. Anyway, in this episode we are going to share some analysis of scenes 14 through 16 of Suicide Squad. These are the scenes right after Waller has inspected her task force at Bell Rev, and after Joker has learned that Harley Quinn is being kept there at Bell Rev. The scenes are Griggs at the casino, Enchantress finding her brother's urn, and then Incubus taking over the man's body and going in the subway station. So we just left the Joker in his knife circle, finding out where Harley Quinn is located, and I really like that Joker laugh, by the way. Now scene 14 picks up on that Joker thread because we're going to see where Joker goes next. And what we have cutting into scene 14 is the camera tracking in on some people who are walking into the casino. And the camera movement matches the speed and flow of the camera that was pulling up above Joker. So a nice transition there. And we see Griggs off duty at a casino and he's wearing a tiger t-shirt which I personally like to think of as a nod to the character Bronze Tiger from the classic Suicide Squad comics. Griggs is having some bad luck at the tables, which seems like a bit of karma after how he treated the inmates. Overall, I think the main character beat for this scene is that we see Griggs in a vulnerable position, which contrasts with how powerful he is and how confident he acts at Bel Rev. Here, he's in a vulnerable position because he's losing money, and he asks for more of it, but he doesn't get it, and he is completely put in his place in the moment when the Joker arrives. Griggs also gets tased, or something like that, when he gets pulled away from the table, he's getting tased, which is him getting a bit of a taste of his own medicine, um, because earlier he had ordered the shock of Harley Quinn. Anyway, they take Griggs away, and they take him back to a kitchen, and this is a cool setting with the raw meat and the cleaver, And it sets the stage for Joker's entry and and Joker kind of taking up this space here in the kitchen. We also have some of Joker's henchmen referring to how brutal the Joker can be. And those stories and those references to the Joker, they prep us for his entry as well. One of them says they had to stop the Joker from burning down Griggs' house with his kids in it. This not only shows how dangerous the Joker is, but it's a connection to the Diablo story that we will hear later. With regard to Ike Barinholtz's acting as Griggs, they always have actors start at an emotional place that contrasts with where they are about to go. For example, if an actor is going to have something really sad happen, they'll start the scene, or they'll even start the shot, with the actor smiling or laughing, so when the sadness hits, it can really come through by shifting from the smile to the sadness. This is a good acting technique because if the actor started sad or started neutral, they would have to go really, really sad to make the emotion stand out as a change. And that's hard to do, and if you're having to make it that extreme, it can come across as overacting because you have to go so far to register a difference. So it's a nice technique to start with the contrast and then that way you can go into the new emotion. And you can see this acting technique all over the place in movies and TV shows. 
but there's a good example of it here in this scene because Griggs is sitting in the room and he's cracking jokes and he's acting very comfortable and loose with his body language. But then the Joker walks in behind him and as soon as the Joker's hand grabs Griggs's shoulder, it cues the shift. Griggs closes down, gets scared. He has that shift of emotion in his face, as he should. Uh, he should be scared with the Joker there. And Griggs has heard the warnings from the handlers and has probably also heard lots of rumors and stories about the Joker. So for us, the audience, we are maybe even more scared than Griggs because we've already seen a similar situation back with Monster T instead of Griggs. And so we know that there is a real danger here. The Joker could do anything. The Joker, now that he's in the scene, has a few more of his many quotable lines. Here it's the blah 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 blah, all of that chit chat's gonna get you hurt. I especially like the blah blah blahs because Leto's performance really makes use of the red lips and his white cheeks when he's saying those words. And then there's a Joker growl, which is unnerving, and because it's unnerving, maybe it was so unnerving that it turned some people off to this version of the Joker. But to me, it was part of the point that he is unnerving. He makes us uncomfortable. And this growl and things like that, it contributed to me not being able to take my eyes off of the Joker in all of his scenes. Then the Joker silently has Griggs kiss his ring, emphasizing his power over Griggs, just as Griggs has power over the Belrev inmates. After the kiss, the Joker breaks the tension by letting through his more jokey side and a big Joker smile. He snuggles up to Griggs and gives another quick Joker laugh. The scene ends with him stating, You're going to be my friend. This isn't a question. He has just exerted his power over Griggs, and he is telling Griggs that Griggs is going to help the Joker. Which, of course, we know means that he's going to help get Harley back. We just don't yet know the exact details of the Joker's plan to do that. Also, this line from the Joker about friendship, uh, Joker's ordering somebody to be his friend, it connects to the main topic in Suicide Squad of friendship. We have said before that a theme of this movie is that friendship is more powerful than leverage. In this case, Joker is saying that Griggs will be his friend, but of course this is not a true friendship. The Joker is totally using Griggs to get Harley, his pet, back. And he is doing it with subtle and even not so subtle threats. So really the Joker is setting himself up on the leverage side of the theme rather than the friendship side. Joker's more akin to Waller rather than to the squad. And that's why ultimately the Joker will fail in his quest. Well, he fails up until the coda of the film, anyway. Then we cut to the next scene where we get an establishing shot of the Patriot Suites Hotel, with a row of American flags out front, and it's raining, so we know it's going to be a tense scene, not a happy scene here. The Washington Monument is visible to the left, and that same monument was also featured prominently in Batman v Superman, and also in that movie, it was a hotel-based scene featuring male and female lead characters together. Here, June is sleeping, and Flag is awake, looking out the window and chomping on a chicken leg for some reason. Their presence together reminds us about their relationship, but I still have to say that I wasn't fully bought into their love at this point, and having a sleeping June not interacting with Flag isn't going to push the relationship forward or show the deep connection. And even when June whispers, Enchantress, we don't get to see a warm and loving response out of concern from Flag for June. Instead, he pulls a gun and moves forward in tactical fashion, because it's already Enchantress there on the bed. Now, as I've said before, I do like this smoky witch design. 
and we get to see an early display of her power here as she is able to project lifelike visions into other people's minds. In this case, it's Flag seeing a deceased June on a hospital bed with a tube coming out of her mouth. It looks like she's just died. So here we do get to see some genuine concern and emotion from Flag toward June. But it's not a great chance for the audience to bond with June's character um, because she's there behind all this medical stuff. And it's also not real. But I guess it does raise some questions for us, the audience, about whether this is a possible future or just a false vision, and so that does kind of create some intrigue for us. We cut back to the hotel room, and Flag is trying to call Waller on his phone, but Enchantress indicates to him to put down the phone. She then appears in Waller's room and seems to be going for her heart in Waller's case, but it's protected. Then she hears something calling to her, and she whisks into the side room. I remember in my very first viewing of the movie that I didn't like her little bob and weave move here as she appears inside the room and then turns to the side to look at the files. I had no idea at that point in my first viewing that this little bob and weave, I was going to get a lot more bobs and weaves later. I know what they were probably going for was some sort of otherworldly movement and physicality for the character, And that makes sense, because I agree that a witch can't just walk around and grab things like a normal person, but I personally just didn't like the fluid sway motion that they ended up going with. Anyway, the important plot beat here is that she finds the urn containing her brother, which Waller also possessed, but which wasn't locked up as securely as the heart. Now that Enchantress has her brother, we have the first clear steps taken toward the main threat that will drive the plot of the movie. Structurally speaking, Suicide Squad is abnormal in this respect because Enchantress finding her brother occurs about 33 minutes into the movie. And normally the big initial thrust for the threat or conflict of a movie has happened already by about the 12 to 15 minute mark. So Suicide Squad delayed the kickoff of the threat, asking us to wait for it, while the first half hour was spent establishing the squad characters, the Bell Rev setting, Joker and Harley, and, of course, Amanda Waller and her fatal character flaw. And yes, from a certain point of view, Waller is the true villain of the movie rather than Enchantress, and Waller came in way earlier than this. But Enchantress and Incubus are definitely the active threat that drives the main events of the movie. It may have been a lot for the filmmakers to ask us to wait this long for the thrust of the plot. And this wait or this delay may be one of the reasons that critics' opinions of the movie started heading south. But I personally don't mind waiting for the threat to be launched, and I did like the first half hour of the movie establishing the characters and setting and style. But unfortunately, what does compound the issue is that now that we do get to the threat here, it's established pretty quickly and without much nuance. So that's what I wish could have been a bit better. The execution of the threat I wish would have been kicked off better. I don't really mind the timing of it. And actually, I should say that the execution of it is a bit better in the novelization, but let's take a look at the next scene in the movie. After the Enchantress grabs her brother's urn, we cut immediately to a man on the phone in a subway bathroom. From the novelization, we know the man is Gerard Davis, and he is disgusted by the subway restrooms, but he has to ride the subway while he tries to rise through the ranks at his work. We also learn that he has a wife and two kids at home. The Enchantress appears in the mirror, 
and then grabs Gerard through the mirror and slams his head. I thought this was a really cool shot, and that doesn't really work in a novel. It's a very cool shot for a movie. And like the scene way earlier when the Enchantress came through with the hand exchange back in scene 10, uh, that was a cool visual. And here with the mirror and the takeover, I thought that these are some nice visuals and choreography with the Smoky Witch as well. Enchantress then releases her brother Incubus into this human host. I don't think they ever show him saying Incubus to transition like June says Enchantress. He's just automatically Incubus and stays that way for the rest of the movie. In the scene, the two siblings now have some subtitled dialogue to catch each other up to speed. Enchantress says she has freed him, and she says they're in the same world as before, it's just much later now. He asks what happened. This question seems to be asking how it is they lost their power and came to be trapped, first trapped in urns and now trapped in human bodies. Enchantress explains that the humans turned against them. Instead of being worshipped as gods, humankind now worships machines. And then, to quote the next line from Enchantress, quote, So I will build a machine that will destroy them all, end quote. Okay, so this is what I was referring to when I said they motivate the main threat pretty quick and dirty. This one line about building a machine to destroy humanity is basically Enchantress's whole motivation in a nutshell. I can sort of see how she wants to make this grand, ironic statement of killing them with that which they worship, with that which they have exalted in place of her. You love machines, now watch as a machine kills you. But her reasoning is pretty flawed, because really she is the one that would be killing them, and so why should they go back to worshipping her if she is killing them along with the machines? But maybe she doesn't need to have sound logic, maybe she's just vengeful and murderous because she's evil, and that's fine. But I would still say that the filmmaking wasn't great here to set up the motivation for Enchantress, because I don't think humans' love of machines was really established in the first half hour of the movie. Yes, there are various machines in the first part of the movie that show up. There's guns, tablets, earpieces, televisions, and so forth. But they are not thematically emphasized even though they could have been if Ayer wanted to make this machine thing a big theme. Instead, the thematic emphasis has been on friendship, love, and connection between people, and on people's manipulations of one another. It has not been on people's love of machines. So here, this motivation for Enchantress, it strikes me as a bit of a thematic swing and a miss. I should say, however, that the novelization sets up Enchantress and Incubus a bit better, In the beginning, and also here in this scene, in the novelization it's page 91, and it gives a bit more dialogue between Enchantress and Incubus in the bathroom scene, so you can check that out if you're interested. The scene also, according to the novelization, um, and I suspect that the novelization was based on an earlier version of the script that was a longer version of the script than the final filmed version. But in the novelization, it establishes the state of God in the Justice League universe. So this is kind of interesting. God is real, but he has left and is no longer watching out for Earth. So it's sort of a deistic universe. That leads to interesting questions about when exactly God left with respect to Atlanteans and Amazons, and at what point did humans turn against the old gods and start worshipping machines? These questions and these ideas also bring to mind some specific machines, the mother boxes, which come from the new gods. 
Based on the teaser trailer for Justice League, Mother Boxes were introduced to the world during the Middle Ages at the latest. So this is all kind of cool to think about, and we also might find out some more information about these things in the Wonder Woman movie, because her character's roots in Greek mythology connect to a world of gods that are no longer worshipped. Anyway, Enchantress finishes her conversation with Incubus by telling him to gather strength and feed on humans until she returns. So that explains his next few scenes. And she then whispers Enchantress and returns back to the hotel as June Moon. Flag is still there with his pistol, and he keeps it pointed at her until he confirms that it's really June back. Then he puts the gun aside, and they hug. In the extended cut, they have some additional lines, but basically Flag just says that Enchantress went somewhere. And then June gets her important lines, saying, If you have to choose between her or me, stop her. Promise me you'll stop her, even if it kills me. So that's some pretty obvious foreshadowing. And I appreciate foreshadowing, but it's not quite as subtle as the foreshadowing in, say, Batman v Superman. And the downside of foreshadowing that is too obvious is it takes away the tension later on when the moment that was foreshadowed finally arrives. In this case, there's the moment at the very end when Flag is trying to get June back and he's threatening Enchantress. And because this foreshadowing was so obvious, we already know that he's going to kill Enchantress just like June asked him to. I guess, though, there's still a bit of a twist, because June ends up still being alive after that. But the decisive moment for Flag has already been indicated to us by this foreshadowing. At least for me, in my viewing experience, the payoff of the foreshadowing was not as effective here in Suicide Squad as it was in BVS, when, at the end of BVS, Superman died. I did not know Superman was going to die until it was actually happening, and it really hit me emotionally. But then when I look back through BVS, I see lots of foreshadowing for Superman's death. Now, even though, in my opinion, some of these things related to Enchantress are not perfect in Suicide Squad, I do want to say that there are many other elements of the film that I liked. In fact, most of the other elements of the film I liked. So I may seem like I'm being kind of negative here in this episode, but it's just because these were a couple of the Enchantress-centric scenes and to me, Enchantress and her storyline didn't work as well as I would have hoped. But one thing that I think made sense as a driving force for David Ayer to include Enchantress is because of his idea about having bad versus evil. And he said bad versus evil is more interesting than good versus bad. How did this idea of bad versus evil play out in the film? Well, the most obvious way to see it is that the squad is composed of bad people, but Enchantress is evil. And Deadshot even says this out loud by the end of the movie. He calls the squad the bad guys, but he calls out Enchantress as evil. In this scene in the subway bathroom, we see Enchantress's motivation stated explicitly, and it's a very simplistic motivation, to destroy humanity because they have stopped worshipping her. So perhaps we can draw from this the idea that evil is a very simple and inarguable thing, whereas being bad is very complex and involves moral gray areas. Or maybe we could say that it's something that's at a power level of something like God that can be evil, but somebody that's human and at a human power level, they really can just be bad, they can't be evil. So those are some things to think about anyway that are raised, and I think they're raised, interestingly, by having Enchantress be a centerpiece of the movie. 
We can continue thinking about those ideas a little bit more and see how they play out later on in the movie, but to wrap up the scene here in the subway, we now go to an incubus-possessed Gerard walking in the subway, and he chokes and collapses. And I give the actor or the stuntman a lot of credit for that good, realistic fall, almost as good as Jorel's fall in the beginning of Man of Steel. A police officer and a physician come and try to help out, but Incubus bursts out and stabs through them. He then grabs and absorbs some other people as he kind of crab walks and rolls over onto the tracks. This part of the movie, this scene here, was pretty effectively filmed in a creepy way, kind of like a horror movie style. And I think the music here added a nice touch as well. Incubus then reaches out and seems to gain some power from the electrified tracks in addition to the power that he's absorbing from the people. We get to see our first glimpses of the patterns on his skin, and he grows as he stands up and then he bursts through the oncoming subway train, so that gives us an early indication of the power that we might be dealing with. And now, this has set up a clear job for Waller's newly approved Task Force X. That's our analysis, and if you don't yet have the digital copy of Suicide Squad, you can grab it this week together with the Blu-ray and DVD It's coming out on Tuesday. And just this past week, the people at Screen Junkies released their Honest trailer for Suicide Squad. I like a lot of the Honest trailers, and I definitely don't mind them poking fun at the DC films. We have to be able to laugh about it, even if it's something that we really enjoy. And both Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad have been two of the most successful movies of the year, so they should be able to take the hits just like anything else. The Honest trailer brings up several main points about the movie that could be viewed as critiques. For example, they bring up the idea that Flag gives a bit too much direct exposition, the design of the eyes of the adversary leaves a bit to be desired, Enchantress's waviness is pretty awkward, June Moon uh, is a pretty bad archaeologist, the sky beam going up into the air with the debris is a bit of a cliché, and the helicopters take quite a few too many hits in this movie. I actually agree with those points, even though I don't think that they ruined the movie, nor did they prevent me from enjoying the movie. And with regard to June as a bad archaeologist, the novelization actually makes it clear that she was being drawn to the urn by Enchantress, and that Enchantress was giving June the urge to open it. So she wasn't really thinking clearly as a normal archaeologist would be. However, there were also some things in the Honest trailer that I disagreed with. Early on, they say that Waller needs her team of bad guys to save the world from one of her members of her team of bad guys. And they say it like it's just some silly contradiction in the writing of the film. But I think this is actually one of the main points of the script, not a mistake in the script. It's totally on purpose that the filmmakers had Waller lose control of the team and then try to cover her own mistake. She was playing with fire, but was too overconfident in her leverage to recognize the risks she was exposing herself and others to. Similarly, the screen junkies say that Diablo has some amazing powers, but won't use them, as if that's an oversight or mistake. In fact, that was a conscious decision by the filmmakers, and it was central to Diablo's character arc, and I thought it was a good character arc. I also disagreed with the screen junkies saying that the Joker was lame, or that he could be cut out of the movie. As I've said before, and I'll say again, I really liked this interpretation of the Joker, and I thought it worked with the style of the movie overall. I also think that he was important to the movie, 
because he was a connection and the center point of love for Harley's character, and Harley was clearly one of the co-leads of the film. Without the Joker, you aren't able to have Harley's character arc fit into the overall themes of the movie. I also disagreed with their final quip at the end about the satellites. Just because there's another satellite with a camera on it doesn't mean that that satellite can replace the capabilities of the satellite that got destroyed. But anyway, it was funny, and I liked their parody character cards at the end, so well done to them overall. Now, the last thing I want to say here is that I have a quick correction to my extended cut reaction from last episode. I had said in that initial reaction upon my first viewing of the extended cut of Suicide Squad that I thought Dr. Quinzel's therapy treatment had caused the Joker to forget some memories. But Alejandro, who is at Digital Mutation on Twitter, corrected me by pointing out that maybe the treatment is what caused Joker to remember the memories, not forget them. Alejandro also pointed out that the Joker did not want those memories from before he was the Joker, because the memories contradict his vision of himself as purely an idea. I had said that I didn't like the inclusion of those past memories because it messes up the purity of the Joker. But actually, now with the help of Alejandro, I see that the Joker didn't want those memories either, and that's why he was so upset about it for the same reason I was, that those memories cloud the pureness of the Joker as an abstract idea. So thanks at Digital Mutation for helping clarify that new scene. And thanks to all of you for listening and to the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel Answers for your podcasting inspiration. Next up, we're going to shift back to Batman v Superman for a little while, and we also want to get out a Man of Steel episode before the end of the year.